Okay, this is not good. <laughs> okay, we're having a few uh, technical issues to start off the stream with. Um, I'm is it actually going now? Or? Right now, yeah, we're both coming through right now, but um, I think the intro ran like a couple times, switched in and out. Uh, that was a little bit weird, uh, but we're coming through now, it looks like, so might as well okay. just roll with it. We've uh, we've never had that happen before, but, you know, it's a day for new things, I guess. So, yeah, hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for sticking with us through the, the weirdness. Uh, welcome to another binary episode of the Day Zero podcast. Uh, as always, I'm Spectre with me Z. Uh, today we have a post on exploiting some null defs in the Linux kernel, uh, some Git vulnerabilities, and some other various interesting bugs mixed in there. Uh, but before that, Z will get into this week's Spot the Vuln solution. Yeah, this week's uh, Spot the Vuln is... I, I thought it would be fairly easy. Um, I had a couple issues point out. So one of them I, technically could be there. I don't really say it's not. Um, and for those of you listening, we've just got a C program that is printing a directory listing, taking an argument uh, that passes into um, ls. And then you've got at the end there, after it crafts the arguments, passes in the exec vp call to ls. So, basically just, well, I mean, it forks also, but um, basically just printing an ls of some path. Uh, there is argument injection, potentially, if the attacker has complete control over the path, they could, you know, directory traversal or, like, get it to show um, whatever. Um, there were some suggestions of command injection, but you shouldn't have that because this is exec uh, vp. So it's going to execute whatever that first program is, give it the argument. Um, where the actual issue holds, or at least the one that I was thinking of for this, is the fact that ls here um, it does not start, or is not an absolute path. It's just, here's ls. So um, I do have the comment at the top saying, assume this is a secuid binary, kind of hinting towards a local attack here. Local attacker would be able to set their path so there is a another ls binary somewhere there and it'll just execute that as long as it's earlier in the path than the original ls is it'll be executed with the privileges of the owner binary of you know the secuid binary so presumably with elevate privileges so it's a fairly classic issue fairly old issue um but still one of those things that you know it happens it's still out there we still see it just an easy thing to maybe forget to look for when you've got, you know, all the cooler vulnerabilities to look for. Um, and Rudimal says, um, ls, ls, dash l. So no, uh, by convention, arg zero, when it's passed an exec uh, VP or any of the exec family, um, is the file name. So that's why the argument starts with ls and we're starting the ls binary. You could perhaps call it, you know, um, or give it some other value there, but by convention, first argument is the um, is the binary or the file being executed. All right, so uh, we'll jump into our topics, uh, of which up first we have a Project Zero post on uh, exploiting a bug in the oops handling for Naldi references. So, you know, Naldi references are kind of a class that uh, for a long time has been fairly irrelevant for exploitation, but Project Zero is kind of turning that on its head with this post a little bit. So, see, I know you found this one cool. I'll let you jump into this one. Yeah, I really enjoyed this post, in part because, um, 
you know, like I said, melody references are generally seen as just non-exploitable these days. Uh, with userland not being able to map the null page, kernel can't access it. Um, it's just one of those places where you get the melody ref and you can't really do a lot with it. And the last time we had a post that was talking about being able to do something with the melody ref, um, we were both, I recall, disappointed by that post. This was quite a while back that we covered it. Um, and it ended up being North Korea trying to hack us. So there's that aspect of it too. But, um, Still, this one at least feels a bit more in the spirit of doing something with the or of doing something with the null DRF. And as Spectre already kind of indicated, instead of actually using the null D reference as like their core primitive for exploitation, it takes advantage of the handling of the null D reference. So in a lot of cases, when we're talking about userland null DRF, this isn't going to make them exploitable. But in the kernel, the kernel doesn't quite want to crash when it gets a null ref, so it generates an oops, which is kind of a lesser form of like an alert that something went wrong, but it's going to try and recover in some cases. It's going to try and recover, but it's going to, you know, kill the task that caused it. Um, and in doing so, it's not going to do all of the cleanup that it should be doing. Um, it's maybe not going to free memory. It's not going to release locks. It's not going to release reference counts that it may have taken. At that point, it's just going to quit and go on with something else. So it tries to recover, print some error information, whatever. Um, and this looks to exploit that, or a bug that's introduced because of it just quitting and not doing any of the proper uh, cleanup. So it's basically exploiting the side effects of the the oops that happens. Uh, so as we just mentioned, the reference counts may not get returned, which is more or less what they took uh, took advantage of here uh, by finding some that uses a reference count that's still just 32 bits, so more likely to overflow that in a, we'll say, reasonable amount of time. Uh, they did find, um, I guess I should also mention, the null D reference that they actually have here was in a, when you read like uh, proc PID, uh, SMAPS rollup. Let me just find the code here. Yeah, so they have this, has the nullity reference in here when you're able to create a method that doesn't have, um, I want to say it was the VMA. I think it was VMA pages, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically, one thing just isn't initialized, so it's still set to null, they get a nullity reference. Doesn't really matter how they got to it, um, because the key thing here is they're taking advantage of when it ends up happening, uh, killing off all of the or not cleaning up properly after it. Uh, so they basically end up finding that, hey, this doesn't... Um, let me find the... They had a list here of several kind of side effects of their... Uh, here we go. Uh, so when the oops happen, they have kind of the events that also follow up there. And they talk a bit about each kind of side effect that happens here. The key one is that, or key one for the exploitation, is that the mm structs mm users reference count gets leaked. So they take that reference count, it never gets returned. Uh, some of the other ones, there were some other reference counts that would also get leaked. Uh, however, they were less exploitable, either because um, 
Dragon game because the locks aren't released. So the one on the file here, um, the mutex is basically forever locked. Uh, it's never going to be unlocked, so you can't actually do anything further uh, with anything there. Uh, so this one was still kind of usable, and they're basically just causing a number of nullity references, causing this uh, count ref count to be leaked until it rolls back around to zero, um, and then the next user takes the ref count, returns it, oh, we're free, or nobody else is using this, so go ahead and free it, prematurely freeing it, kind of creating the use after free situation. In terms of how long that might take, because if you're unfamiliar with reference count overflow, especially in the kernel, oftentimes, you know, since you need to go up, uh, you know, 4 billion in the case of a 32-bit reference count, uh, they talk about how long this takes, and kind of love reading how long they expect this take. Um, on server setups that print kernel logging to a serial console, so kind of a worst-case scenario in terms of timeframes, because it has to print the oops log and all of the information there to a serial console, generating 2 to the power of 32 kernel loops, enough to cause it to wrap, will take about two years, or over two years. On a Kali Linux box, uh, for a demo proof of concept, though, it took about eight days to complete. So this is not a very quick or uh, usable in a lot of cases, unless you want to sit there waiting, you know, eight hours, or sorry, eight days for the vulnerability to finish. Nonetheless, I do like this one just because it is taking advantage of the error processing rather than the error itself. The memory corruption itself isn't usable, but the side effects of it are, and I think that's kind of an interesting aspect to this exploit. Yeah, it reminds me of some work that I've done previously. So, like, people that have looked into uh, Linux drivers, especially exploiting them, like, even if you're just trying to exploit, like, the damn vulnerable driver or whatever, you may notice that if you cause a kernel oops, you can't open the device again. Uh, like, it just won't work. Um, and side effects that are responsible for that are kind of what they're talking about here. Um, Cause you might end up with a driver that has like a reference count of only allowing one, uh, one user to enter it at a time. So, you know, if the oops isn't able to clean that up, then it's permanently deadlocked off. Um, so I, I've observed some of this behavior before, but I've never really thought about exploiting it in this way. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting to see. It's not super feasible. I mean, uh, two years, you're talking about a pretty long campaign at that point. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and on top of that, something that's worth noting is there is the panics, panic on oops uh, boot parameter. So you have to rely on that not being set. Uh, if that is set, then obviously when an oops happens, it's just going to kill the kernel. Uh, you're not going to be able to do anything useful with it. Uh, and certain setups do have panic on oops set by default. So you know, certain targets are going to be crossed off immediately because of that as well. But yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting place to look. Haven't really thought of it before. Um, and it makes sense as a place to look for like a reference count leak type situation. But yeah, it's not really something you could productize because uh, it's not really being done in a reasonable amount of time. But it's still a, a valid issue, especially when you're talking about servers or something. It could be more more useful there if it didn't take so long but it does and so it is also just something kind of interesting to think about which is you know the side effects of what you're doing that you don't necessarily know it's like when you're thinking about the side effects and the primitives you get from a nld reference or really just any sort of any sort of exploitable case 
you're off thing but that first order what can it actually do and this is just you know getting you to think about more what are the wider side effects what else is going to happen here in this case that oops handling that actually leads to something somewhat usable i mean yeah this case maybe isn't all that great, but there could be other bugs introduced, especially uh, more at a logical level when it does, if there's any sort of global state that ends up being basically in the wrong state because of that early exit from the task, you might be able to take advantage of that in other ways too. Though, you know, something to keep in mind, really. I know I say that a lot with these episodes, but yeah, I mean, this one in particular, I thought it's kind of cool. Something else I'll point out, even though it's probably obvious, is this would be a very noisy attack as well. Uh, kind of the same thing I've said when we've seen info leaks that work based on uh, register context stumps from like a kernel warning. Uh, if you're triggering like thousands and thousands of panics like there are, I guess, billions of panics like this, it's probably going to catch somebody's attention. Uh, and considering, you know, on, on something like a server where it could take up to two years, I would hope that somebody would notice th that this was going on before uh, I, within I two mean, years. But a two year long execution cycle. Just yeah. I don't feel like anybody's doing that, but who knows? Maybe no. we'll find out somebody does. I will also mention um, they did fix this. So they fixed the null DRF bug itself, of course, uh, but they also introduced an oops limit which will cause the kernel to panic if there are too many oops. So that does limit the uh, use case for this particular technique, getting that rep count overflow. But like I said, there are still the case of when it exits early, you might have some other more logical issues get introduced because of that. Yeah, that's a pretty good mitigation, like a pretty good idea. Um, generally, uh, your average user, if they're hitting more than like one or a few oops, then there's probably something more nefarious going on so it it makes sense to try to tackle that that those cases of abuse so yeah so yeah. i don't know what how exactly this is working but if it's like an oops limit that is a fixed value uh i guess they've got a ten thousand limit um the main i'm guessing concern, it's configurable yeah the the limit itself is why well, it's a kernel config so yeah can be yeah. uh can be configured so my main concern would be the difference between like an oops for a second or minute or hour versus just, you know, running a server for a year. Eventually those oops are going to add up and it's just going to crash the server. That's where I could see there maybe not being a great thing. But if there is some sort of like, you know, oops per day, oops per week or something or hour or whatever, some sort of limiting factor. Then like, yeah, it's. It's probably pretty solid. Um, I have not looked into how this works. So I don't know if there is that. But that is the one concern I would have. Because if it's just a never-ending counter, eventually you will hit it. Even without anything nefarious. That That's a fair case to call out. Like, long-running servers with, like, 100% uptime. Yeah, that could be a problem. All right, so uh, getting into some other Project Zero stuff, we have a type confusion in Windows uh, that was found in the wild, reported by James Forshaw, which was a type confusion in the COM plus event system service, uh, COM being component object model, uh, hellscape of Windows that nobody likes to deal with. Uh, another type confusion spawned from the usage of unions, which for those who have been listening for a while have probably heard me rant about before. Uh, this bug occurred in the uh, COM plus event system services uh, put property bag method in the uh, in memory regrow class. Uh, 
um, when handling prop variant objects, which is like a generic container object that can hold integers or comment object pointers or whatever. Um, this particular function would take two prop variant objects as input, uh, which are expected to have a vector of strings and a vector of prop variants. Um, and I think the the name that they attach to that is like a CA prop variant. Problem is they never actually validate the type uh, that's coming in. So because of that, and because it's a union, uh, instead of using the variant that expects with a pointer to the prop variant elements, you could supply a blob variant with data you control and basically pass in uh, fake objects, uh, which you could eventually use to craft a VT unknown variant, which contains a V table that you can hijack to get code exec eventually. So pretty straightforward bug when you boil it down. They just take variant as, uh, a variant as input, which could be structured many different ways, uh, and they don't validate that the variant is the type they expect. They just incorrectly assume it'll always be the CA prop variant type. Um, which is kind of like 101 for using these is, you know, yeah. check the type when you're going to pull it out. Yeah. Um, it's not too surprising, though. Like I said at the top of the topic, like, com is one of those nightmarish systems where, like browsers, there's a lot of different types in play, uh, and it's very confusing. I remember talking to some MS people, and they were like, yeah, there's probably, like, a handful of people who understand, like, com in its entirety. <laughs> like, nobody likes to touch it or deal with it. Um, so it's not super surprising that there's a bug like this coming out of it. And wherever you have systems like this where unions are are in heavy use and you have pointers to controlled data inlining with pointers to potentially attacker controlled data or non-pointers, these types of issues spring out of the woodwork. Um, you just see them like everywhere. They're just so easy to pop up. So yeah, uh, just another example of that happening. Uh, it's fun to see some comm stuff talked about because like I said, a, a lot of people just don't want to deal with it. Uh, but Project Zero, you know, or the people who do want to, like, are willing to go in and deal with it, it could be pretty rewarding, as as P0 has proved here with their In the Wild find, so. So, uh, Rudimal asks, wonder if you can automate finding these. Um, okay, and then suggests lists all unions and fuzzing unions. I mean, yeah, that would probably be a valid way to fuzz. I, when you first mentioned automate finding these, I was thinking like some sort of analysis pass. And I think the challenge on that side um, would be detecting, because this is ultimately coming down to being a type confusion sort of issue, which is just kind of hard to actually detect in a lot of ways until you get it, until you get the right overlap of like data as one type and all of that. Because the code doesn't tell you, oh, I'm treating... Um, I guess I, I guess the disassembly does when you're talking about like a signed versus unsigned integer, but with complex types, like it doesn't really tell you, oh, I'm treating this as X type or as Y type. You don't really get that in the disassembly. So that makes it makes type confusions pretty hard to actually detect when they've happened apart from finding the specific uh, misuses of that type confusion that actually end up being exploitable. Yeah, the fuzzing aspect is interesting. Trying to pull out unions and and build a fuzzer that, like you know, permeates the different uh, like cases in the union. Yeah, that could potentially work. Uh, I don't know how easy that would be with Windows, where you know you don't have source access. If you had source access, it would be very feasible. Um, with something like Windows, though, I'm not sure, but it's an interesting question. Could potentially work. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's in the com stuff, so it's not a super accessible system, even as far as Windows goes. Uh, it's kind of like the uh, the bedrock of, of Windows, the Windows model. So 
yeah, it's a bit uh, a bit hostile to uh, to research. Yeah, although I guess they do uh, call out here after towards the end. Ideas kill the bug class as being you know checking that the uh, VT field, well, checking that it's not checked before accessing the inner valley. Which yeah, actually you could uh, do like a check for that uh, that sort of condition to exist that dominates the actual access. Um, I, I that could not necessarily finding all of the vulnerable cases because uh, there are other things that could be in play, but would at least give you a starting place when it comes to doing some sort of analysis. So they it would at least find have... the most blatantly obvious ones. Well, it would find the cases of it. Um, it would just uh, overmatch. You would have more than just the cases of the bug. Um, and not necessarily all of the cases all, also, but um, uh, because, you know, the check may or may not actually be sufficient for what's there, whatever. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I like they... the tidbit they throw on the end of that also, by the way. Also not using a language with the forms of undefined behavior would help massively <laughs> as if that's going to happen. Like all, all the windows stuff, just, uh, the com is going to be rewritten into like rust or something. <laughs> yeah. Just, just rewrite calm in rust or Java. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a, kind of a funny cheeky sentence to throw on the end of there. But. Yeah. They do also as usual at these call out about thoughts on how it might've been found. Cause of course this is an O day in the wild. Somebody was explaining this. Say, you know, it could have been fuzz, but as I was saying earlier there, like manual analysis seems more likely in this case, they're making that argument just out of the number of arguments need to actually kind of reach it. That's kind of the challenge with buzzing when it comes to type confusions. Like we don't have any sort of type confusion detector. We can just detect the side effects of a type confusion. Yeah, it's hard to write sanitizers for really. Uh it, it, yeah, it's it's not really been done super well, to my knowledge. Might be wrong. If, if I mean, somebody knows of one out there, feel free to link it to me. But It's a hard thing to do, really, without some sort of annotation system that actually annotates, like, this is of whatever type, which, exactly. I mean, K-Malloc type, actually, now that we're talking about it, could detect some of that. Uh, because it would uh, set the... Um, uh, like the flag on every type based off of its type and the structure of its type. So that would actually be able to detect um, an inappropriate access where it thinks it's accessing one type, but it's actually accessing something different. Uh, but we don't really have that as something widespread at this point. Yeah, you would have to have like a tag system in place. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll get into our next topic here, which is uh, a Nintendo... Uh, game vulnerability, which impacted a bunch of different games. Uh, this one's called ENL Buffer Pwn, uh, which is a buffer overflow in several first-party Nintendo games that can be exploited for RCE on a victim console through online sessions. Uh, some of these games include like Mario Kart 7, 8, and Deluxe, uh, Animal Crossing, New Horizons, all the Splatoon games, Super Mario Maker 2, and some more. Um, and as you can guess, because it impacts so many games, it's a bug in a library, uh, specifically the ENL library. Uh, hence the name. It's a C++ lib uh, that's used for like networking. So it's probably like network layer, something network layer, something like that. Um, the bug is in the network buffer objects uh, set and add methods, which they have snippets for on the repo. Um, for those of you who can who can see the stream, the bug here is is fairly straightforward. Uh, they take like a new data size and some data uh, for set. They you know copy that in for add. They prepend it. 
um, or append it, sorry. But they just don't check that the buffer has enough space for the new incoming data. So it's pretty straightforward buffer overflow. Uh, it's also a little interesting because these network buffers are shared with other players to interchange data. So that's where the RCE aspect comes into play. Um, and because you're dealing with networking here, the network lib is asynchronous. And so they use two buffers back to back. Um, already received data can be accessed in one network buffer, uh, while incoming data is put in a second buffer. And then once it's filled, it, the buffers are swapped. It's kind of similar to graphics stuff, actually, uh, for those that are familiar with like graphics code, swapping the buffers like that way. So as an attacker, you could overflow the first network's buffers data to corrupt the metadata of the second network buffer, um, including its backing store pointer, and you could effectively get arbitrary write. Um, so on the I... 3DS, and I think the Wii U, games also don't use ASLR, so pretty trivial exploit at that. Uh, go ahead, Z. Yeah, I just want to jump in there and mention that uh, their exploits uh, did use what you said, where they would overflow the data of one to corrupt the header of the next buffer. However, those buffers aren't necessarily stored next to each other. Uh, they found that that was the case when receiving me data, uh, so this buffer type 9. The, that In that case, the order of the heap allocation just happened to have that happen, but that was something, in a sense, they needed to groom by using the correct buffer type it wasn't some that was just generically available the two buffers are always being used but they're not necessarily conveniently located yeah fair call out um they they kind of use like the ideal case for their exploit pox here and that also includes the targets so like i said like 3ds and wii u uh games don't use aslr so that's kind of where their pox focus on um on the switch, uh, it might be a bit trickier. They call out you could perhaps hijack the network buffer to send data back and leak pointers. Um, you could also maybe do like a partial overwrite or something of the data pointer, but their pox mostly focus on the 3DS. Um, they also state that when it comes to fixes, uh, all the affected Switch and 3DS games have received a patch for this. Uh, the Wii U presumably didn't, probably because it's like an older console. It's not really in supports. So they don't care. But um, actually, I, I don't even know if online services are running on the Wii U at this point. I, I don't really keep up with uh, the Nintendo stuff very much. But yeah, um, it's interesting. It's an interesting bug because it's straightforward and it's also like so wide ranging, uh, impacting so many different games. Uh, and, you know, RCE in the console space is also can have some interesting implications, whether that can be uh, to intentionally like attack other players, as we've been seeing with GTA 5 on PC, by the way. Uh, we don't have a topic covering that, but that, that's been funny to follow. Um, but also just in terms of like being able to infect other players to for like cheating uh, type stuff, which has been seen in the past on like PS3, for example. So yeah, there's some interesting implications there. Um, but a, a pretty trivial bug in a commonly used library, basically, is what it boils down to. So Yeah, I, the main reason I want to add this, and actually we are covering this like a month late, because this came out during our winter break, um, was largely just because we don't see these sorts of vulnerabilities in consoles that often being talked about, especially like in a game and having that sort of application. So I thought it was interesting to bring it up here and talk about it a little bit, even though, yeah, vulnerability, not super interesting surprising that they actually have like um you know they're just in the network buffer missing boundary checks like that feels like the front door the place that you always know like you know securing a login form like the place you know you need some security uh so to see them not doing that is 
genuinely a bit surprising here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Grey Band in chat said Wii U shop closes in March. Yeah, fair enough. So that's probably why they just didn't even bother uh, to fix it there. All right, so uh, we'll get into our last set of issues, which was uh, some vulnerabilities in Git. Um, so this was published on the uh, GitHub security blog. Um, three vulns in Git, two of which were coming out of like the Git attribute parsing. Uh, one of the other was a Windows-specific issue uh, with a path lookup. The blog page we have up now has goes into some details on the bones, um, but Z went commit surfing to get more details on them, so I'll, I'll let him jump into this one. Yeah, there, there is more to this. Um, I actually kind of mislabel one of them, but I'll get into that. First, I'll just start off by saying the one of these is in Get GUI on Windows, um, and basically just in the way that looks uh, in some of the post-processing that I'll do after doing a checkout, uh, what it'll end up doing is it'll look for spell check and spell check to be in the work tree or the vulnerability being that it looks inside of the work tree that it just checked out for spell check runs the binary and you know that's probably not the best idea so really straightforward issue there also not really binary issue so I'm not going to dig into it the other two here um one of them is in um Sorry, kind of lost my place there, but one of them is in git log format, or specifically in the uh, padding operators. Um, what ends up happening there is... Actually, bring that up here. Um, but being in git log format, this is the one that I feel like there isn't much risk of exploitation. You could perhaps... Uh, could perhaps run to the case where some random web app pulls down and then, you know, does a git log on them. But you need control over the format to give it these padding operators to say, like, yeah, left aligner, right aligner, pad a here, whatever, truncate, whatever. Um, you need to have that level of access, which I just don't really see in a lot of applications. So I don't know about any sort of remote acts on this. It would be like a self-attack otherwise, but Git isn't running with extra privileges. Feels unlikely that these will actually be exploited. That said, um, the two issues here... Uh, one of them I did find kind of interesting, but I will open the commits for both. And actually, while I'm talking about that, um, I do have the list of all of the commits for all of the bugs that they fixed uh, between these versions. We'll see there's quite a few patches in there. Uh, pulling up one of them that actually is a little bit interesting um, is basically as this thing iterates the buffer here. Uh, what's going on in the original code, it's basically just starting off with the buffer and iterates backwards on it until it reaches the character it's looking for. There are no bound checks. Uh, so it can just go iterate out, out of bounds, um, kind of resulting in in a uh, out-of-bounds read on that. Um, again, how you'd actually end up exploiting this, I'm not too sure. Uh, but they do happen to get a... Um, ultimately, a uh, write, I believe, from this one. No, sorry, this one's out of bounds read. Um, yeah, read of size one. Okay. Oh, my bad on that. Uh, I, I didn't find this one to be. Sorry, I'm just looking at uh, chat. Um, I will let Spectre deal with that. Uh, anyway, coming back onto. Uh, the second vulnerability here, actually. Um, 
this is the one of the two for format padding that I thought was interesting just in terms of being a takeaway that you can actually look for. What ends up happening with this one is right here at the top of this diff, you can see the use of STRC SPN or, I don't know, STIR C-SPAN. Um, it's basically looking for how many, if you've, I've never used this function um, before seeing it here, but it's basically, it's looking for, you provided the two characters here, the uh, colon or the, uh, or not colon, the comma or bracket. And it's just looking how many characters in star the string, um, how many characters until it reaches one of those. And then it gives you the offset there. And what ended up happening in this code is before a patch way back in 2013, it used to use strchr, str character, and that would return a pointer or it would return null if it didn't find it. And the difference in this one is when they changed to using uh, this function uh, with the offset, they didn't change the conditional down here, which still looked for just like if not end, so if it's null. Um, as the condition would return zero. And that's where you end up having um this one basically will always, even if the character isn't present, will always end up returning, or sorry, will always end up passing this check because it's never just a null. It's the character it points to that's null, so that's how they patch it. But because of that, it never returns zero, and so it just keeps running with all this other code. Ultimately ends up just returning an actual like offset or endpoint or whatever to it later on higher in the stack later execution ends up actually trying to uh read and then and write out of bounds going negative out of bounds on this one um or my bad not negative out of bounds um that was the last vulnerability there uh Nonetheless, effectively you end up getting on it reads out of reads out of bounds after like that null pointer reads there that ends up in the output so you can leak pointers this way i don't know how much you'd really be able to chain that like this is the get you know generally in get log or get archive command trying to chain that with some other vulnerability i don't feel like this is all that exploitable there might be something like i would not be surprised if there was some way to get this but at first blush it doesn't look that useful um there was another one that was actually an integer overflow, and that one just led to an early abort. Um, not as far as I can tell, uh, or a uh, silent truncation. Uh, so I'm not even going to bother pulling that one up. Uh, so the other bugs here, and yeah, there are a bunch going on. Um, if you do take a look, the commits are quite a few commits, quite a few. These are integer overflows that they're just patching. It looks like they basically took uh, the fact that the bug existed and then just went and patched a bunch of places where they might run into integer overflows. Um, jumping into the git attributes. So git attributes parsing feels slightly more likely to be exploited. Uh, because what ends up happening here is the git attributes get parsed. I believe as you check out a file, it's going to load that .git attributes file. It's going to look there and get those attributes, see if there's anything relevant to what it's doing. So that's kind of thing where if you check out a malicious repository, you have a chance of actually exploiting this one. I'm just pulling up code. 
Uh, so one of the bugs is just having a large number of attributes. It will lead to an integer overflow. Um, and I do have the code here. So there's kind of a benign case where you wrap the number of attributes around. Again, this is just an integer, so they're 2-bit int. Uh, wrap the number around, goes negative, and then tries to do an allocation that's just way too big and it fails. Not Not super useful. But there is also a out-of-bounds write and kind of overflow that happens. Um, so I'll walk through that code here. And this parse attribute line comes through and you've got the number of attributes being stored as a integer, along with the iterator i being an integer. Um, it will, uh, right here, kind of goes through, uh, looping through all of the attributes, taking num attributes plus plus, so just incrementing that. Um, it never checks the num attributes value, so that can actually end up, that's where you can end up having the overflow happen um, in this loop. And for those of you listening, the i, the iterator that I mentioned, that's not being used in this loop, so that doesn't really come into play at this point. Um, that's used elsewhere. Uh, so num attributes is 32 bits, um, but you can have more than that, or more attributes than that that it needs to parse, so that will end up wrapping back around to negative and eventually back to zero or some small value. So right after that loop where it calculates the number, it will end up doing this X call lock, which uses the number of attributes. So if you have like zero, have a wrap around to zero, it's going to allocate too small of a buffer. And then you have various copies that can be abused there. Uh, so that's where you end up getting that out of bounds right seems like that one could be could be usable it's going to depend a lot on like the usual what what's actually in the heap what you can actually do with it uh but that one does feel like you could probably do something with it having that small allocation you can definitely overflow here something fun uh at least fun for the attacker side they don't really talk about any exploitation strategy so you'll have to explore that more yourself you're interested um on the exploitation strategy though uh this next bug i think is a little bit more entertaining um it has a weird okay so it has it has an interesting cause actually i should mention that before i go to the exploitation the cause on this one ends up being um do i have a link to the code here let me just bring up the code instead of the diff because it goes a little bit long um you get past in this adder stack uh so you've got this adder stack free function it's supposed to be doing some freeing gets passed in that adder stack and that adder stack tracks a number of matches here the problem is a number of matches i'm not going to pull this off or i guess i can pull it off because it's literally right here um it's uh an unsigned value however uh, this iterator i, in this case, is a signed integer. So it's iterating through the number of matches, but that's unsigned. So eventually, that i is going to increment so high, it's going to wrap around to negative um, and never actually meet up on num matches. Um, goes negative, the access, when it's using i, is going to go negative. It's going to go out of bounds. It's going to eventually end up reading a value out of bounds. Uh, based off of what's read there, and 
potentially try and free it depending on whatever attributes are actually set, but it'll take the address basically and try and free it. Uh, it'll also free the actual A value that I read there, but it has all these frees in there. So I thought that's kind of a fun little primitive. You're going out of bounds, out of bounds in the negative direction, and it's going to free it, but this is effectively an infinite loop. This for loop will basically never complete because I will never or will always be less than num matches. Um so yeah, I, I it's don't a case how... where I feel like you would have to exploit it and then subvert the code flow with your like post exploitation. Um because yeah, it's it's interesting because you could primitive chain off it. Like, you know, you're you're able to free like an out-of-bounds pointer. I don't know if you get like an arbitrary free, but regardless, you could cause like a UAS scenario somewhere else. Um and potentially get like, you know, a full exploit going. Um, but this is something that you would have to fix after the fact. Like just cascadingly infinitely freeing things is probably not gonna work out too well for the process. It's probably gonna end up blowing itself up at some point if you can even exploit it in time. Um so it's a very like weird case for sure. Uh weird exploitation scenario to be in, probably not a reliable one. Uh but like you said, entertaining at least. Yeah, it's it's entertaining to think about. Um I don't even know what the threading system looks like here. If you do have multiple threads going and you can actually take advantage of the use after free after you get these free, or if you're just going to be stuck in this loop trying to free them forever. Um, and if there is no threading, you're probably just going to crash. Uh, you're going to crash. Yeah, that's a fair quickly. point. I was kind of assuming that there would be threading in here. Um, kind of based on the code, I guess, like where I'm seeing like Atra stack free makes me think like, you know, um, Bring on some thread stack or whatever, but yeah, that's a pure assumption. I don't well, know. It's, it's still part of the get attributes parsing. For sure. Um, and I could see feels, it being threaded. So can I. Especially at the end as it's doing this. If this is being called, though, when it's first parsing the attributes file, I think other work being done during checkouts dependent on the results of attributes parsing. Um, and so in that case, you wouldn't really, or you may not have threading, or maybe it's going to thread per directory or something. So, like, there's definitely the case where it does thread. I feel like it's pretty likely, but I don't actually know, so I don't want to make that claim here. Yeah. Um, but a mix of interesting issues. When it comes to where this could be useful, uh, you already kind of pointed at one case with, like, you know, checking out a malicious repository and, and hitting like developers or something that pull it. Um, the other thing that could be an interesting scenario is like uh, hitting a CI CD pipeline kind of thing um, where, you know, something in that chain might be pulling the repository to do something. Uh, I don't know how feasible that would be to really try to pull off, but it is a potential use case for these kinds of vulnerabilities. I mean, it would basically um, be anywhere that's trying to pull a repository that isn't directly under their control. So any potential yeah. attacker-controlled repository, which is a much wider scope than, I think, needing access to uh, the Git log vulnerability, or, well, the formatting vulnerability. Technically, it's also accessible through, like, Git archive. But being able to control the format argument feels super unlikely, and, like, most apps just aren't doing that. Repository, though, yeah, checking it out, CICD... All of that, that feels at least somewhat likely as a target for one of these.
Yeah. Part of the problem, though, is this type of scenario is going to be like a one-shot exploit, basically. Uh, and it's not something where you're going to have a ton of control over like the heap state, most likely. I don't know for sure. Uh, I've never really tried attacking Git or, or playing with like what it offers uh, in terms of like primitives. I mean, um, you could actually have a reasonable degree, just because of the fact that it's dealing with files that you're sending that are part of the repository. It's going to be reading those. It's going to be allocating based off of those files. There does feel like you could have some control over the heap, just in terms of structuring your repository correctly. It depends really on how, uh, like, Git does the allocation and how well it can separate things. But uh, it always depends, yeah, I can't comment yeah. on that. Yeah, of, of course. But um, yeah, you are kind of limited to the, like that one shot um, aspect of it, most likely. So yeah, uh, it would be an interesting attack scenario realistically probably these vulnerabilities aren't really going to be used uh in any like serious attack but they're fun to talk about uh and they are some there are some interesting scenarios here that we went through like especially that one with the the loop that does freeing so and i really think the cause of some of these is just interesting like i mentioned the one where they change from stir character to that sir c-span or whatever uh, that's a good one like, that sort of bug, like, that happens, that's something to keep your eye on, especially if you're watching patches and using that to do phone discovery. Like, that's some, that's just one of those cases to be aware of. Oh, they change one place, but not the other place it impacts. So seeing that here is kind of neat to see. It's a good example of that sort of bug. Um, Code changes breaking assumptions, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the usage, like the structures all tracking these things, because that actually happens in multiple cases here. Some of them are fairly benign, so I didn't open them up. You can see there are quite a few patches, but a lot of them were cases where like a structure was tracking the size or the count with an unsigned value or even with a size T, which is also unsigned, but uh, larger. Uh, they're tracking them there, and then they just use an integer when they either pull the value out or whatever, so they lose information, they do that, like, those are just kind of interesting cases that definitely exist. And I think as developers, like sometimes there is that habit to just go for that familiar int case rather than actually thinking about what's going on, recognizing what's happening. For sure. Uh, yeah, when iterating, especially. So uh, yeah, I wasn't that too surprised actually, we saw so many cases of that. Yeah, that one's kind of fun. I mean, the uh, unlimited, or sorry, the infinite uh loop there um that that's kind of a fun bug in general too like if you just saw that like that's kind of fun but having the free there exploitation makes that one interesting but yeah on a whole i feel like a lot of these are going to be pretty difficult to actually uh productize i would definitely be interested if somebody managed to do it uh but at a glance like there are definitely some challenges that you need to get over to abuse most of these i will admit i didn't look at all of the commits i didn't get everything done i just looked for those that at a glance seemed interesting so there might be something more interesting more damaging in here uh but they don't actually call it out or call out any of them so i'm not as sure, per usual but... yeah as per usual if you want to check it out after the show uh our show notes will have like the links um to this so you can go ahead and take a look, but there is a lot of commits there. So like, yeah, it's, you, it's hard to go through all of them, uh, especially, you know, on the podcast, but. Okay. So Rudamal touches on something that 
I'm not sure if we've talked about on the podcast before. I feel like this might have been a drop topic. Uh, but he mentions, I just always do unsigned integers unless needed. You just don't need negatives that often. I go back and forth on this one. So the thing is, how often do you need all 32 bits? Versus having kind of that warning sign that an error has happened. Because if a number goes negative, like if you need if you need 32 bits, you probably should be using a 64-bit integer, not a 32-bit. Like, you should be sizing up at that point. Um, so having that sign bit that actually kind of indicates something has gone wrong and having a clear way of checking that also feels like a bit of a benefit and something you could do. Um, I get where you're coming from on, like, use unsigned ints because, generally speaking, you're counting. It should never go negative. But that negative can be a bit of a warning flag. Um, yeah, just think of how much more difficult error handling would be if you didn't have access to negative values. Um, it would be a nightmare, <laughs> generally, across the board. Like it, it uh, you would have to have, like, special attack. tagged values. Yeah. I mean, I could imagine, though, even with what he's saying, like, using unsigned init for the values, your error returns can still be negative um, and do something with that, just not having the actual values being, uh, uh, allowing them to go negative. I think it's fair. I kind of lean towards uh, having the signed values um, and sizing up as needed, but there's definitely an argument to be made on both sides. I've, I, I was kind of alluding to a post I think we were going to cover quite a while back uh, that was basically an argument over signed versus unsigned, but I don't think we actually covered it. If we did, I'll see if I can find the episode. I don't have the link either ready to go, but um, but yeah, th there's. I know, like Google's code style, actually. If you've looked at that, they recommend the opposite uh, to use signed for reasons like what I'm saying, rather than using unsigned. Uh, but yeah, I I think that's a discussion for another day. But you reminded me of it. It's all about trade-offs, really, and depending on what you consider, like, more important. Uh, so, yeah, there's not really a definitive answer. It kind of depends on how you feel about it and what your project is doing. So, yeah, it's a fair discussion, but it's it's hard to really come to a conclusion on. All right, so uh, that's all the topics we have for today. Unless you have any parting thoughts, see, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Yeah, no shout-outs this week. All right. So thank you, everyone who tuned in. Uh, if you want to catch past episodes, you can find recent ones on Twitch and all of them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Uh, furthermore, if you want to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter, links for those are down below or in the chat as well. And with that said, we will see you next week.